0: Oh boy, has it been a busy week for general practice. I literally can't keep up with all the kind of crap that's been coming out. It must be conference season, not political party conferences. No, this week we have seen the NHS Confed Expo Conference. At this conference, all the big wigs from around the country and around the world come and talk to each other about what they think is best for what we are meant to be doing. It's an unwritten rule. You're not allowed to go and talk about the same stuff as before. You can't just kind of wheel out the same old things again, even if those things are working and they're right. No, you've got to think of some new stuff. And that means that people come up with all sorts of crap. The English health secretary, Sajid Javid, has said that there are plans for change for primary care. If I had the licensing for ominous music, I would play it in the background of this podcast right now. But don't worry, before you start getting anxious about things, he's going to turn his attention to pharmacies first. Poor old pharmacies, they've been royally screwed over the last couple of years. What on earth could he possibly mean? Well, your guess is as good as mine. I'm hoping he might mean give more support to community pharmacies so they can give really good advice. After all, pharmacy is being geared up as the gateway to the NHS for patients. Now, I know lots of really good community pharmacists. I know many who are working in general practice and do an absolutely fantastic job. But if you ever go and stand in a pharmacy for... A few minutes, it is like the wild west of medicine. I was waiting for a prescription once when um an old guy came in and he said to the pharmacist, Yeah, my shoulders sore. Have you got anything that could help with that? Um I'm going on holiday tomorrow, so I just need something, uh thinking like some anti-inflammatory gel. And the pharmacist said, Um, are you on any medications? And the guy goes, Yes, I'm on a statin. And the pharmacist goes, Oh, it might be the statin that's causing it. You better go and see your GP. And I stood there trying to work out the logic. What's the chances of a statin causing an acute one-sided shoulder pain? Which the patient was clearly demonstrating as he wiggled his shoulder as a rotator cuff injury. It was Friday about five o'clock. The guy was probably going to get on a flight in the next 12 hours. Chance of him getting a GP appointment? Pretty slim. I suppose he could have ended up on someone's duty doctor list, making both of their lives worse that evening. I stood there thinking, should I intervene? I could probably give some good advice here. In the end, I stayed silent, not wanting to undermine my healthcare colleague. All I can do is offer my apologies in hindsight to the GP that ended up with that phone call. Anyway, I doubt support is what Sajid Javid was really meaning. I suspect what he really means is he's going to send some pointless work and lots of NHS funding towards some major private high street pharmacies that his mates own to deliver some unhelpful, unevidence-based treatments that patients don't need and doesn't relieve the burden on primary care. Once he's lined their pockets, then he can turn his attention to general practice. Your guess is as good as mine as what that will mean, but I dare say it might involve... NHS primary care being subcontracted out to the lowest private bidder. That brings me on to Panorama. Anyone watch that this Monday? The BBC's expose into the practices of Operos. This is a private GP provider. It's got a parent company, a massive healthcare company in America, and they've been buying up general practices around the UK, and they are now the UK's largest owner of GP practices. Now, I don't normally watch these kind of programs because if I want to feel depressed, I can just go to work. But as all of us feel the heat from increasing patient demand and reducing resources, I thought it might be interesting to see how private companies were faring as they um, buy up NHS um, GP practices. The government has this fabulous notion that these companies are going to be able to do it more efficiently than we are already. This is, of course, utter nonsense general practice is already very efficient. It might not feel like it during your working day, but, but compared with most businesses around the world, it is exemplar. So that means if you're trying to get some profits for your shareholders, the only way to do that is to cut costs. How do you cut costs? Well, as the Panorama documentary suggested, this was by recruiting physician associates instead of GPs to their practices. And if we can believe the documentary, there were times where there were practices exclusively run by physician associates without any senior medical oversight. Just like with pharmacists, I have met some extremely good physician associates. They would be the first to admit that they have limited training. They do need support. GPs need to be debriefing um, physician associates uh, every single day so that they can make sure that the correct clinical decision has been made and also so that we can continue the education. Many physician associates, given the fact it's a fairly new role, many of them have not been in the clinical environment for very long and they need to learn. And they're very capable of learning. They could be excellent clinicians, but to do that you need good teaching, you need ongoing support, and just being thrown into practices by yourself is um, not only unfair, but it's of course dangerous as well. This group also can't and shouldn't be expected to do all of the administrative tasks and clinical decision making off the back of that that GPs need to do. And the Panorama documentary highlighted that there were maybe hundreds or thousands of unread clinical letters unactioned, which, of course, is deeply troubling. Now, the implication in the documentary was that physician associates were being used because they were a cheaper alternative to, to doctors. It would be interesting to know the truth about this, whether this is purely a cost saving measure or if this is down to some of the recruitment difficulties that general practice is facing at the moment as well. So if private companies owning primary care is not the solution, what about being salaried to hospitals? You will all know that I've talked about this before on the podcast, but Nikki Kanani, head of primary care for NHS England, has apparently reassured at this conference that the partnership model is not going anywhere. Well, not going anywhere may be the right phrase. Practices are scratching their heads in England about the PCN DES. It's now all being confirmed. They hate it, but they're trapped in it. Uh, The extended hours is, of course, the main bugbear for a lot of people. It's confirmed that GPs must be on site at all times for those extended, extended hours. It's hard to justify any other option, to be honest, as we've just talked about operos running without GPs in the building and highlighting the inadequacies of that provision. Plus, there's a rather unpleasant irony about GPs moaning about being forced to work weekends as they force their allied health professional colleagues to work the weekends for them. Nevertheless, one thing we can all agree is that it's all just a bit crap. Where will it end? Of course, the crux of the problem is too high patient demand for not enough clinicians. But I would argue that there are enough GPs to cope with demand if only we would work more. Now, before you string me up and burn me, hear me out. I would never suggest that we need to work more in our current environment. In fact, one of the main drivers for me leaving my salary post of five or six years was... Because of overwhelming workload, trying to cram more and more and more into a working day just results in us getting really overwhelmed and stressed. It leads to bad management, rushed decisions, and that's not good for our patients and is inevitably not good for us either. So I agree with Sajid Javid, the status quo cannot continue because general practice is not working. But I would argue it's not that GPs don't want to work more, it's that we can't work more in this environment, My wife's practice has done something um, novel recently, so they offered all of their salaried GPs an extra session, which they could do from home over the phone. All of them said yes. There's um, additional flexibility. You can tailor your working data how you want it. Um, There's just not the same pressure as there is when you're in the practice. Crucially, rather than using this extra session as just a mechanism to heap more and more work onto us, what they've actually done is used it to reduce the intensity of the other days, reduce the appointments on the other days and move that into this new um, remote slot. Yes, this is going to cost the partners some money, including my wife, but they're unanimous in thinking that taking a hit on their income is actually better for their staff, to reducing that intensity, making the staff happier... Uh, making patients safer and it's also good for the partners as well because we all know that it's really difficult to retain good staff at the moment i appreciate that not every practice will be able to afford to do this but perhaps we should stop pissing around with pcns and other crap money streams and start trying to encourage the policymakers to use resources in a smarter way so yeah it's been a busy week and oh my god I haven't even talked about Capita yet. It's Friday, the 17th of June, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Hot Topics Podcast from MB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker, and as ever, I am here to walk you through Well, I would say the next 20 minutes, but I've already been moaning for 10. So we've probably only got 10 minutes left. I'm here to talk to you for the next 10 minutes about some interesting research in the world of primary care. Now, I know that most of you won't be listening to this on the day that I record and put it out. Um, So I'm going to say this in another way. Do you remember that day? It was hot as hell. Boy, that was hot as hell. I'm standing here recording this, sweating buckets, chugging water. Hopefully I can survive another 10 minutes. Today we are going to have a look at three papers. So first, uh, the BJGP and possibly one of the most important papers that I've seen in years. And this is an exploration of the accuracy of the NICE traffic light system for assessing fever in under five-year-olds. This actually came out three weeks ago on the day that I recorded the last podcast. I was gutted I didn't have it in then. It would be remiss of me not to talk about it now. Then we're going to have a look at a BMJ paper on whether using internet delivered psychological therapy can be as effective as one-to-one psychological therapy for mild to moderate post-traumatic stress disorder. Then we'll round up with a paper published in today's Lancet on prescribing opioids post-surgery. So let's have a look at this BJGP paper first. I've got to be a little bit careful because I'm sure we are going to talk about this on the Hot Topics course. In fact, I was writing it in the new Hot Topics book just um, earlier on this week. But it's such a good paper, it would be remiss of me not to mention it on the podcast. And it does have important clinical implications. So we're all used to traffic light systems now, right? You've got your green amber red categories for whatever the topic is you're looking at indicating mild moderate or high risk disease of whatever the disease is that you're trying to assess we use it for things like sepsis on the hot topics course for the last year we've been talking about the royal college of peds acute cough bronchiolitis and croup traffic light systems as well There's traffic light systems for everything these days. So the thing that kicked off this fad was the NICE guideline on assessment of feverish illness in the under five-year-olds. That came out about 15 years ago now and many of us will not know a world of general practice without this concept. So we all got very familiar with the idea about uh, measuring objective findings in children. So Um, getting as many physiological parameters as we can, making sure that we document them and using those physiological parameters to decide on how well we think an unwell child is and then using that um, information to guide us on what management is appropriate from there on and the speed of which they might need to go to hospital if they're very unwell. And despite the early concerns and criticisms by uh, maybe older and established GPs, I reckon that most of us these days buy into the idea, we buy into the concept not just for medico-legal reasons, but because we feel that it's a safe thing to do. It's the right, responsible way to assess children who are unwell. As Ewan Lawson, the editor of the BJGP, points out, there are also aspects of... The guideline that make it more plausible that it is um, useful for clinical practice so things like um, he uses the word off-ramps which I really like Um, there's off-ramps for GPs so um, if the healthcare professional is unwell then that's an important finding it kind of builds up our confidence that okay well there's all these parameters but also there's this clinical judgment that needs to be made um, and our clinical judgment is not overridden by this guideline. And yet, what most of us don't realise, including me, and I've been working on the Hot Topics course now for 12 years, what we have um, failed to appreciate is that this guideline has never been validated in primary care. Validation in the setting it's being used is, of course, very important. Even more important when we realise that almost exclusively the data that underpins all of these recommendations is from hospital so it's from a and e departments from wards on hospitals and often neonatal wards as well most of the data is from under six month olds but you have to delve into hundreds of pages of the background information about the guidelines to really appreciate this it's not something that they not information that they offer um up front for us i think many of us would question if all of this recommendations is based around a two-month-old who's in a neonatal unit is that really applicable to that four-year-old with a cough who sat in front of me right now? Of course, trying to address that kind of question is where the best research is generated. So it's fantastic that this group of researchers from Cardiff, Bristol and Oxford has taken the time to actually go and explore the traffic light system in more detail. They used a retrospective analysis. They used a cohort of children that had been recruited for a trial called the DUTY trial. Some of you may have been involved in the duty trial. That was where um, we, a few years ago, were recruiting young kids who had fever um, of any potential cause, and then um, they were checked for having UTI. There was a lot of uncertainty around what the true rates of UTI were in unwell children in primary care, and they were trying to address that. As part of that study, they collected a lot of information about a variety of physiological parameters, which then this group can uh, have been able to retrospectively apply the nice traffic light system to. Now, I'll go into this in more detail on the Hot Topics course, because I'll be writing that section. But the headlines are, if we use those red high-risk indicators as our marker for serious illness, we will miss half of those children with serious illness. So we can't be reassured that we're correctly identifying unwell children using these high-risk parameters alone. So then what you could do is you could say, well, in the intermediate group, there is the option to either manage those children in the community or if we think it is appropriate, send them into hospital. So then if you use the marker of the intermediate plus high risk, so amber and red categories, as a discriminator for serious illness, then the sensitivity goes up to 100%. You will not miss any children with serious illness if you follow that strategy. But that will include 94% of kids that you see. So you will be sending 94% of children to hospital. Only 6% will have green low-risk indicators suggesting they can be managed in the community. All the rest, all these other children with fever, you're sending them in. So as the authors conclude, this really challenges the utility of this NICE traffic light system. They understandably call for significant revision or indeed a new evidence-based guideline to help clinicians. What's incredible is as I was reviewing the NICE guideline and going back and looking at some of the data, I for some reason started going through all the appendix that are attached to the original guideline back in 2007. And tucked away in Appendix J, it's about 500 pages into this crazy long document, the authors acknowledge that no single clinical criteria is sufficient to distinguish serious illness in these young kids. However, and you literally can't make it up, when a child is identified as ill by an experienced healthcare professional, that child is likely to have serious bacterial illness it feels like they could have just written the guideline with those two sentences. The other distressing question that comes out of this research is what about all the other traffic light guidelines? So most of them are based around the same physiological parameters. Most of those have been pulled from the same data. Are any of them any use or have we just been conned and are conning ourselves into thinking that they are? watch this space. I'd be amazed if these researchers are not now going to go back and have a look at some more of this data and see if it applies to these other situations because they could literally make a whole career out of it. Moving on to something that may hopefully be much more useful for our patients and that is the idea about online interventions delivering psychological therapy. Now, psychological trauma is an interesting issue it's definitely been under but there is now growing awareness amongst both uh, the population and healthcare professionals as well post-traumatic stress disorder is of course one of the um, possible consequences of trauma and there are a range of effective treatments for this psychological therapies demand is outstripping the supply So there's already data that showed you can use computer-based psychological therapies very effectively for depression and anxiety. The question in this paper in the BMJ was can guided internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy with a trauma focus CBT-TF be non-inferior to individual face-to-face CBT with a trauma focus for mild to moderate post-traumatic stress disorder linked to one traumatic event? This was a pragmatic, randomized, controlled, non inferiority trial conducted in UK NHS. Uh, Almost 200 adults were recruited with a primary diagnosis of mild to moderate PTSD. And then they either received 12 face-to-face manual-based individual CBT with a trauma focus session lasting 60 to 90 minutes. Can anyone actually get that on the NHS? That seems really, really good. That's quite a high benchmark for non-inferiority in my mind. So then they compared that to guided internet-based CBT with a trauma-focused, an eight-step online program with up to three hours of contact with a therapist and four brief telephone calls or email contacts between session. I guess thinking about the numbers, that would mean that you can probably treat three or four more patients using the guided internet-based um, therapy than you could doing that individual face-to-face therapy. The results showed that guided, internet-based CBT was clinically effective, it was also cheaper, and it was well-tolerated, plus people didn't really seem to mind it. Um, they, they didn't dislike the idea compared with having um, traditional face-to-face um, psychological therapy. Now, the primary endpoint was 16 weeks. They also did some follow-up to one year, and at that point, things were a little bit less clear possibly coming out in favour of face-to-face CBT. They wondered whether this is purely a dose effect. So that group ultimately would be getting somewhere between 12 and 18 hours worth of input. And unless you're willing to do a lot of online work, then you're never going to get that same level of dose doing stuff on the computer. The authors suggest that more research is going to be required in this area. That's obviously going to keep them busy. Good news for them. For the rest of us, I think it's useful to know that this may be a way of getting better access to psychological therapies for our patients that have suffered trauma. Lastly, a paper in The Lancet, and I'm going to keep this quick because I'm in two minds about this paper, but this was a systematic review and meta-analysis of the effectiveness of opioid versus opioid-free analgesia after surgical discharge. Now, they were particularly looking at sort of low-level or moderate-level surgery, not really complicated surgery, which hurts like hell. Although it's worth noting that a range of orthopedic and general surgery procedures were included in the study. The quick results is that um, compared with opioid free analgesia, opioid prescribing did not reduce pain on the first day after discharge or at any other postoperative time points. It was, however, associated with an increase in a range of adverse events such as vomiting, nausea, constipation, dizziness and drowsiness. I've definitely seen a shift from hospitals away from using opioid analgesia postoperatively. So I wonder if this is already happening in clinical practice. I'm certainly all for trying to reduce unnecessary medication use, particularly those medications which may be harmful to our patients. The only reason I'm in two minds about this paper is because it's based on low-quality data. Put low-quality data into a meta-analysis and you get a low-quality answer that comes out. And you just can't be that confident in that result. Perhaps we could put it back to the patient. Would you rather not poo with an opioid or would you rather poo blood with an said, let me know okay that's it for the research thanks for listening once again don't forget there's lots going on with MB Medical we have a couple of live webinar hot topics courses coming up one tomorrow and one next Friday on the 1st of July we've got our managing overweight and obesity course coming up um, we've also got an urgent care course coming up all before the summer break And of course, you can get everything on demand. Don't forget about MB Plus, our subscription service that gives you access to everything that we do for just over £300 a year. And if you are listening to this on Friday the 17th, wear sun cream. Bye bye.